This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Ron Hebrick, President and CEO of Compeer Financial. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, the voice of milk. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Compeer Financial's Ron Hebrick next. Open Mic is brought to you by Edge Dairy Cooperative, the voice of milk. Edge provides dairy farmers in the Midwest with a strong voice, the voice of milk, in Congress, with customers, and within their communities. Edge is a progressive organization that represents all dairy farmers equally, recognizing both their differences and similarities. Now the number four dairy cooperative in the country based on milk volume, Edge is amplifying the voice of its farmers. Now more than ever, dairy farmers need to be heard. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Many of the nation's farmers have spent 2019 hoping for improvement. But weather challenges both at planting and the harvest, trade distortion, demand erosion, and low commodity prices have weighed on farm balance sheets. Rod Hebrink, president and CEO of Compeer Financial, says as difficult as the past few years have been in farming, they don't compare to the financial hardship of the 1980s because many farmers grew equity before the recent drop in income. One of the real differences is we never accumulated that level of debt. Land purchases that were made, other asset purchases that were made, uh, a lot of cash went into those acquisitions and a lot less debt went into those acquisitions. Leverage is a great tool from a financial perspective while things are going well, but leverage is also... Uh, a real anchor around your neck when things are are going bad. And so we never developed that leverage in agriculture. And that's allowed us, as as, uh, clients have had an erosion of equity, erosion of liquidity over the last several years, it's put us in a very good position to what we call rebalance their debt, Uh, extend payments, preserve cash flow, build liquidity, into their operations so that they have the the cash available, the liquidity available to make sure that they can meet their day-to-day obligations. And so that's been a real tool. Fundamentally, on the production side for producers, crop insurance has and remains one of those critical tools, and we're, we're happy to see that it was extended in the in the 2018 Farm Bill, because that's the best safety net that, that producers have, uh, and it, it's removed the necessity of, of Congress having to insert emergency assistance for general weather issues. Uh, uh, you know, you can have the disasters from the hurricanes in the southeast or so on, but but it's removed that other broader need for safety nets. And you get into a year like this where we had record prevent plant acres, acres never planted, the crop insurance really becomes that core and critical safety net. So given the climate that we've come in 19, and again, straddling toward 2020, knowing the financial plight of some producers, which we'll talk to in, in, in just a moment, are the Department of Agriculture tools provided in the Farm Bill with crop insurance, with the support that has come from the White House uh, with regard to trade, are these pieces enough to keep agriculture afloat, or is there a greater need and a looming storm? Well, I suppose some of that remains to be seen. I, I've mentioned crop insurance, and that is a critical program now. The the design of crop insurance is it's it's not meant to guarantee anyone a profit 
along the way. And as price levels ratchet down, those guaranteed revenue levels that are part of, of crop insurance ratchet down along with it. So, you know, the safety net each year gets a little lower in that respect. Uh, you mentioned the, the White House payments and, and trade. The market facilitation payments have been really critical for Midwest agriculture these last couple of years, both in 2018 and again in 2019. Now, I think going into this uh, cycle, we were seeing government payments of various types representing 10 to 15 percent of, of overall farm income. This year, it's likely to be about 30 percent, and it isn't necessarily because you know, we've ramped up so many government programs. The income levels have come down. We're talking about $16 billion of market facilitation payments. That's been the difference for many of these operations, being able to generate a modest loss to a modest profit versus a, a, a loss that may have threatened their viability. I want to speak to those who are trying to compare today to the 80s. Leading into the 80s, as I recall on our farm, there was a tremendous appreciation in metals. Uh, the cost of machinery and everything was on its way up. And we were jumping on the wagon as it was going up. And then it peaked. And then there was tremendous, not just commodity price erosion, but equity erosion of that land, of those farm machines, and no one with cash in hand to buy, not to mention a lot higher interest rate. How do you evaluate where we were at that day and where we are now? Well, that, that period of the 80s was the beginning of my career, uh, but it was, it is a very different scenario today. And, and we get asked that question a lot. You know, are we going into another 1980s? And I, I just don't see that kind of scenario on the horizon. And you, you mentioned some of the reasons for that. That was the 70s were fence row to fence row. You know, plant and produce all you can. But in addition, both in agriculture and the broader economy, it was a high inflation environment. And so, asset values, land values in particular, jumped dramatically in a relatively short period of time. They stayed high. There was a fair amount of land sales at high. Uh, high levels. And uh, then, in order to squash out inflation, the Fed, in, understandably so, raised interest rates, and I think prime hit 21%. Well, if you are a capital-intensive industry, like agriculture is, uh, interest rates are at, at that level just become a real anchor. And uh, land values crashed by 50, 60% or more in many parts of the Midwest, and so and it was, there was heavy leverage. Farmers were borrowing 85% of the land, uh, the purchase price. They were they were borrowing 85%, and so you just you couldn't make the payments. Nobody was there to buy. Land values fell dramatically, and that's what led to the the crisis in agriculture. So the difference today is that in leading up, yes, there was appreciation in land values throughout the early 2000s on into the probably 2010-12 time frame. But it took place more gradually. There was a lot more cash that was invested in each of these sales. And so instead of 85% of the purchase price being financed, it was more likely in the 50% range. So a lot more equity coming in. That meant that each of those farmers had more staying power. Interest rates have remained low, and we're still at essentially historically low levels. And that's been those have both been huge contributory factors in sustaining land values. And so, yes, we've come off the peaks a bit from where they were, but there weren't many sales at those really peak levels. In the last three, four years, we've seen basically flat, very stable land values across the Midwest and in the territory in which we operate. Uh, and it's allowed 
it's allowed clients time to adjust, to make adjustments on the on the uh, earning side, the expense side of their operations because they haven't had to worry about just an erosion of, uh, of asset values on their balance sheet. What did farmers and lenders learn in the 80s that have helped to sustain us through this storm now? Uh, the, the importance of leverage, that's the debt level that you have. Leverage can be your friend when everything is going well, but it turns around really quickly when you're going through some challenging times. And so it's, it's to not get overextended, to use that cash. Also, the importance of liquidity uh, in, in operations. Because if you run out of cash, you're out of business. And so you have to make sure that you're, you're structuring your finances in a way that ensures that you have enough liquidity to meet the day-to-day obligations that you have as an operation. So with regard to farm policy, there would have been a time when there was a surplus. Government programs were different. We were controlling the number of acres. We were setting loan rates and loan levels and target prices, and it was a much different structure. We went to a market-based farm economy. And in the midst of this farm-based market economy, when where production is at, at an optimal level and so is the rest of the globe, these trade tensions have closed the door to market, so it's turned into a perfect storm. Well, it has, and, and of course, in addition to a market-based e- economy here, uh, during that period of time, we've seen production increase in many other parts of the world. South America has become a, a significant competitor in, in the row crops and corn and soybeans, particularly in the soybean production area. And so we have more of a, a much more of a global marketplace. We know that in the United States, roughly 50% of the total soybean production gets exported. And so, the, therefore, when we get trade tensions that disrupts that flow of commodities, we're going to see an immediate reaction uh, in commodity prices, and that's what's happened. Now, we can argue the politics of whether these, those were good decisions or not, but th- that's not really my focus. My focus is on the economics. So the reality is when we've disrupted trade, whether it was with China, Mexico, or Canada, essentially three of our largest agricultural trading partners, there was an immediate impact on the revenue side of agriculture, and we've been living with that for the last three years. What about equity erosion? What have we seen of land values, of the machines that farmers have have purchased, or of cash rents? How has that equity held up in the midst of this financial storm? The equity, particularly in the land, has held up very well. I would say, and it, it depends a little bit on where you are, we may have come off 15 to 20 percent of, of the peak land values, but frankly there wasn't a lot of land sales at those peaks, and producers really didn't build that in to their balance sheet and equity and try and borrow against it. So we, we came down from, from those peaks, but in the last two to three years, four years, uh, land values are essentially flat. And we go through a process of looking at appraised values across our territory. We call them benchmark farms so that we can link other farms like them to those benchmarks and track those changes over a long period of time. And we see plus or minus changes of, of 1% or 2%, and, and so it's very, very flat. Uh, over that period of time. And that, as I mentioned earlier, has been really helpful for agriculture to have stable asset values essentially stabilizing that equity. So it isn't, it isn't asset erosion that's occurring. Any erosion in equity is really coming through an operating loss. 
which is bad, but it's, it can be compounded much more if you have an erosion of, ec- of asset values at the same time. I'd like to be more candid for a moment, if I can, and ask you to step just away from Compere and to move up to 30,000 feet and look down on the industry overall. And I'll base this question on headlines. On one side, we have a senator who is talking about legislation uh, to help farmers with suicide assistance, mental anguish. We have stories of, of, of farmers that are going to non-traditional ag lenders and paying much higher interest rates to find operating loans. Uh, we have the American bankers just so many days ago that said more than 40% of, of their producers will not be profitable for 19 and probably won't be into 20. So from one side, we hear that we're steady and the industry is, is, is holding on. What we're hearing more from the challenged side of the industry, it's hard to generalize. But but, but how do you how do you sort through the noise of this? Well, it is hard to generalize. I we have forty thousand farm families that we work with, and and I tell our team that they're all individual, and the solutions for each one is different. And so it's important when we when we have this conversation that we it's understood that we're talking in in generalizations. And uh, yes, the 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 stress levels, um, the mental health, the suicide issues are important in rural America. I get a little concerned that the statistics can be oh, distorting uh, along the way. I, I I think whether you're in farming or other small businesses, independent operations, you feel a different stress than you would as me as an because you're always responsible. You're the only one accountable at the end of the day. Uh, certainly as we go through uh, financial challenges and like we are today in agriculture, that just exacerbates things. It's one of the reasons that we extended what we had as an employee assistance program to all of our farm clients free of charge so that they have numbers that they can call into for counseling and support along the way. It's, it's not a, the overall solution, but it, it helps. And it depends on which commodity that we're talking about, because corn, soy, wheat, sorghum, and one category in livestock, what dairy and swine have endured, completely different. Well, they are, and that's that's always an important distinction for agriculture. Uh, again, at this 30,000-foot level, we kind of talk about agriculture as though it were a single industry, and it is not. You know, there are lots of different commodities uh, and Agriculture in the West Coast and the East Coast is different than it is in the Midwest. So, you know, sometimes, yes, we, we raise corn in many of those states, but, but there's a lot of different kinds of agriculture, and, and so you have to dig down and find the rest of the details along the way. Let's talk about the things that are ahead. I asked a farmer recently, what do you want for Christmas? And he said, all I want is trade, trade, trade. Uh, USMCA is still pending. China is still into negotiations, and thankfully there's a deal with Japan. Uh, does the thought of trade or the lack of trade keep you up at night? Well, I wouldn't say it keeps me up, but it is one of those concerning pieces for agriculture. And farmers, well, are very appreciative of the uh, market facilitation payments. I think you'd also hear readily, look, we don't want government support. What we want is open markets and the ability to compete. Uh, and and ultimately, that's the that's the answer and the solution for them. Uh, but yeah, we need these the trade issues resolved. Uh, USMCA is is resolvable at this point in time. We 
we hear that there's the votes in Congress to support it, but it, it has to be moved forward. We'd strongly encourage the adoption for agriculture from an agricultural perspective, the adoption of the USMCA to to make sure that we continue to have access to the to the markets in Canada and Mexico, which are two of our key trading partners in agriculture. You mentioned Korea, and, and we continue to have good uh, agricultural trading there. In Japan, yes, there was a trade agreement that is beginning to, to bring down some of the tariffs against agricultural products. Pork is one of the major exports to the Japanese market, and, and it's important that we have that. But China is... China's China. They're a huge influence in, in the world, and both their, their economy in general, but also for agricultural trade. Um, you know, we get, we're, we're getting some optimistic comments coming out of, I think, both sides that it, it is, uh, there's some light there, and we may get phase one done. But I think to a certain extent, the markets have also, oh, I don't know, they've become uh, a little callous to the the optimism that exists and then we take a step back and so it's time to see real outcomes there if we're going to really move the markets. I think there are some who have a mindset that as soon as we get the trade war over with China then we're going to go back to normal. I think the cloud of the trade war with China has hidden some other events, the black swan of African swine fever. Even if we had had a normal trade relationship with China, whatever that is, the African swine fever situation can be underestimated because it's going to change their needs. Well, no question. So there's there are really two important parts of that. One, you mentioned African swine fever, but also what happens when trade is normalized. You know, fundamentally, many of these are commodities, and that means that you don't need much of an oversupply and you get a really r- rapid and significant response to price levels. And I think that's what we've seen. And so, yeah, our focus has been on trade, but production has been increasing in many areas around the world as well. So it'll be helpful for us to normalize trade relations, but it isn't necessarily going to resolve everything because we still have very large ending stocks in corn and soybeans that are going to weigh on the market. Um, so, for example, the USDA report get brought down the production level in the U.S., but it also reduced the estimates for demand. So we're kind of where we started from, and it didn't really didn't help price levels. Price levels have continued to retreat. African swine fever is a black swan event, and so far, thankfully, it has not crossed into the into the United States. It's been on the very eastern edge of Europe and in a lot of part of Asia, and is reducing uh, swine production in a part of the world that pork is the major source of protein. So that can be very good for American pork producers, um, but that black swan is what happens if it does get into the United States, because we export 27% of the pork in this country, and so we would we'd lose our trading partners overnight if African swine fever broke out in the United States. So that's an event. You talked about what keeps you up at night. That one does. That one keeps me up a bit at night, because there is no... Uh, immediate solution if African swine fever were to get to the United States. The one element that we haven't discussed is the average age of a farmer. Our producers are getting older and they are weathering this storm. But at the same time, there's also some young and beginning farmers that are trying to merge into the business in a very difficult climate. What programs have you offered or or how are you working with that particular group of tomorrow's farmer to help them make it into the business and survive this storm as well? Well, we do have young, beginning, and small uh, farmer programs available within our organization to help transition or to help bring in 
uh, farmers of, of all sizes into agriculture. Uh, and, and so those are important programs. And yes, the age of farmers are, are, is getting older, and what generally happens is as an older farmer transitions, that land or operation is consolidated into another operation, and therefore we have some ongoing consolidation into agriculture. And, and I don't think that's driven, that's not a new phenomenon. I mean, that's been taking place essentially since World War II. If you look at the, the numbers of farms in the United States and or the size of farms. So, yeah, today we've, we've at for now, leveled off around 2 million farms, which is a lot lower than it was 70 years ago. But within that 2 million farms, you have about 10 to 15 percent that produce 75 to 80 percent of the total value of farm production in the country. A lot of part-time operations, uh, and people can sustain a part-time operation with some off-farm income. Uh, and so it, it isn't just driven by the economics, and we're talking about losses within agriculture. It's also driven by the reality of the labor requirement in agriculture today, the, um, the size of equipment. I've heard the statistic that in the 1950s it took 40 hours of labor to produce an acre of soybeans, and today it's like 45 minutes. Well, you need more acres to be fully employed, essentially, than what you did a generation ago. Sorry. Rod Hembrick, thank you very much for taking time to spend with us here on Open Mic. We appreciate every time you have the opportunity to visit with us. It is Open Mic, and the banker gets the last word today. <laughs> well, thank you, and I, I appreciate uh, joining you and being part of, of Open Mic today. Um, you know, I, I, a couple of things that are important. We've talked about the market facilitation payments, and, and they are... They have been a difference maker, and I think it's important for the policymakers, and I know each time we talk about government payments, it becomes um, a controversial issue. But uh, those have been very, very important uh, programs and payment structures to agriculture over the course of the last two years, and I just want our policymakers to know that and to understand that as they continue to make decisions for for agriculture. And beyond that, the programs that are part of, of the Farm Bill and crop insurance. And, and again, we know that there's always debate about those issues, but they have become really critical programs to support agriculture. I think they've done their job, as I'd mentioned earlier, has prevented the necessity of, of emergency or disaster programs for agriculture in general through the ups and downs that we've experienced. And I'll end my comments with a comment that I often make about agriculture in this country is that we're, we're really blessed with highly productive, productive agriculture that provides to us in the United States the lowest cost, most abundant, safest food supply in the world. And we just should not take that for granted. Our thanks to Compere Financial President and CEO Rod Hebring, our guest this week on The Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, the voice of milk. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.